0: Welcome to Central Speaks, home of our weekly podcast. Central Speaks is produced by Hamilton Central Baptist Church. Have you ever noticed that in life we're surrounded by things that we take for granted? They're they're quite obvious in some ways, but then at closer examination, they can be really quite complex. Take, for example, gravity in the world of physics. Now, for some... Even the mention of the word physics has sent shivers down your spine as you remember year 10 or fourth form science classes. Well gravity is all around us and we live in it and live with it and it affects all the things that we do and the way that we do it. And at one level, it's pretty obvious. I mean, it makes things stick to the earth. A slightly more complex understanding that most of us understand is that the bigger or heavier something is, the more it sticks. And as I get older, I seem to stick more and more. (laughs) As we think more about it though, and as we make more meaning of it, we see that there is actually a whole lot more to it that can be said and can be understood. There comes some specific language and ways of describing it, and even famous people who have uh, tried to make sense of it, like Newton and Einstein. They've produced wonderful word pictures to help us understand it. and These word pictures or metaphors help us to explain things that we see that are a bit bizarre. Like, like for example, how the heck do large airplanes fly up in the sky? Or how come astronauts are weightless in space? Well, these are all cool questions but they're for another day. In the Christian world, like the world of physics, we have similar obvious ideas that with closer inspection are really quite complex like salvation. If you're like me, a Christian who grew up in a non-Christian home, at some stage in your life you'll be able to identify a point where you say, well, that's when I was saved, meaning that was the point at which I became a Christian. Perhaps unlike me, you started life in a Christian home, but in the Evangelical tradition, you'll probably still be able to point to a time in your life where you can say, well, the same thing, that was when I was saved. The third proposition, of course, is that you grew up in a Christian home and you're quite confident that you've been saved, but try as you might, you may not be able to pin an exact point of your salvation experience. It sort of just happened over time as you chose to follow Jesus more and more. And the final, well, as far as I can think, proposition is that you either grew up in a Christian home or you didn't, but the important thing in the story is that you've never had what might be called a salvation experience. You'd not call yourself a Christian. Salvation is one of the core ideas of Christianity. All Christians can say that they've been saved, but but what does it really mean? If you're doing this at home, turn to the person next to you and uh, explain to them what being saved means to you. Just to be clear here, there's no test at the end and there's no marks given for answers. And You might want to begin with the phrase, to me, being saved means, if you want. Take a moment now and pause. Hopefully in your discussion there was some reference to Jesus, either stated or inferred, and his work of salvation. A fundamental part of our understanding of salvation is the sense that we make of Jesus' death on the cross and the language that we use to communicate that to ourselves and to others. You could take another moment and, and this time explain to the person next to you what Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection means to you. How do you make sense of that? You might want to begin with the phrase, Jesus' death and resurrection to me means, and then complete the statement. If you want, pause for a moment. You know, I'd love to be able to listen to all the conversations that just happened. To hear what sense we've all made of this event and the event that is both historical and spiritual in relevance and interpretation. As a historical event, it's recorded not only in the Bible but in Roman history, where where Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was born, lived, and taught in first century Palestine, was crucified on a hill outside of the city of Jerusalem. He's documented as rising from the dead was seen in bodily form by many people. He continued to teach for around a month, and they were seen to ascend bodily to heaven. As a young man, it was this story that stopped me in my tracks and changed the direction of my life, a life that's been spent making sense of that, for actually we're called to make meaning of this event. Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, what does it mean to, to work out your salvation? Well, the text has a couple of interesting concepts, and Paul, being Paul, chose his words carefully for effect. Firstly, the term to work out. Well, Paul uses the Greek word katsagestai, which conveys the idea of bringing to completion, to full completion, to perfect accomplishment. And to conclusion. Paul effectively says about our salvation don't stop halfway. Don't be satisfied with a partial and obvious understanding of our salvation. Go on making sense of this thing called salvation. Work out what it means in your life until it fills you and brings you to completion, to bring you to the best you that there is, the you that God intended you to be. The second concept is uh, fear and trembling. Paul instructs us to work out our salvation to completion in fear and trembling. Well, I'm not sure about you, but the idea of doing life in fear and trembling at first look worries me a bit. So the first thing we can say about this is what it isn't. This is not the fear and trembling of someone who's worried that they will uh, be punished It's not, for example, the dread that you might see in the face of a slave cringing before their master as they wait for punishment. Fear and trembling in this context comes from quite the opposite motivation. It comes from a sense of one's own inadequacy and our weakness and powerlessness to deal with temptation and sin. It's based in the thought that in our failure we will grieve and disappoint God. For when we really love a person, we're not afraid of what that person may do to us, we are more afraid of what we may do to disappoint and hurt them. The fear of love is not the fear that we may be punished by the other person, it's the fear that we may wound the heart of that other person. The fear of the Christian is that we would disappoint God. Far from driving us away from God, This fear draws us nearer in the sure hope that he is the solution to our condition. So as we deal with what is an obvious concept, a bit like gravity, well actually it's complex. And how do we understand our salvation? A cool way to get a feel for this is to try and explain it to someone else, as we did in the beginning. What language did you use? metaphor or word picture do you use? Is it saved by grace, washed in the blood of the lamb, born again, follower of Jesus or a disciple of Jesus? These are all word pictures that carry important meaning for Christians but, but they may not carry so much meaning for non-Christians, more particularly in our day and age. Interestingly, Throughout history different word pictures or metaphors have been used to try to explain the concept of salvation to those that do not know Jesus. The word pictures change as society changes and as the world around them changes so that the message of salvation can be communicated clearly and accurately to a new generation. These word pictures rely on a number of consistent concepts though. The word picture can change, but the fundamental ideas or truths remain the same. So let's look at these fundamental ideas that are part of the message of salvation. These are the building blocks of the message. As we unpick them, think about these ideas and where they turn up in our songs. The first one is atonement, Well, I can't think of a song that has atonement. Atonement is an English word which describes the way Christ's work undoes the separation between humans and God, and it opens up the possibility that we may be again reconciled or made one. The word atonement at one-ment with God. The second idea is grace. Grace is a statement of understanding of our spiritual position. We are sinners in need of rescue and salvation is by grace. As Christians, we accept that all of humanity bears the weight of sin and that all human beings are separated from God because of Adam's first sin. Furthermore, we are all incapable of saving ourselves. We are separated from God by sin and like those that are partying inside of a sinking ship, We need to be rescued, even if it doesn't look like it from what we can see. We have no means to save ourselves. We depend entirely on the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Salvation is needed not only for us as individuals, but for our society, the way we work together, and for the world that we live in. Next, justification. The idea of justification is allied to ideas of justice and righteousness and draws from ideas of law. It's about being holy and right and pure. Paul insists that being justified or being declared righteous is a gift from God, not something we earn through works. Being justified does not mean that we are perfect but it takes into consideration what's gone on to make us justified to a point where the judge can now say, no longer guilty. The next idea is reconciliation. In Romans uh, 5, it says, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is about the making right of damaged relationships. The story of the Bible from Genesis 3 onwards is the story of God reconciling humanity to himself. The New Testament shows us how this is done in the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus and then goes on to help us make sense of that. The next big idea is redemption. In the Old Testament, the word padar is used to describe the mighty hand of God at work through the dramatic saving deliverance of Israel out of the power and oppression of slavery in Egypt. It shows the power of God at work and that he can overcome an enemy and that he will bring judgment upon them. In the New Testament, the idea of redemption is expressed using the language of commerce in the Roman world where it was written. Its meaning like in the Old Testament is to release or to set free but is added to with contemporary ideas around money, to redeem, to to ransom or to pay the price of release. Allied to this is the term redeemer in the Old Testament, ga'al, which comes from Understandings of Old Testament family law. It's the concept of redemption out of bankruptcy. It means to lay claim to something that has been lost or forfeited or alienated from your family. The story of Boaz who rescues Ruth and Naomi from ruin gives us a a word picture for this concept. Boaz is Naomi and Ruth's kinsman redeemer who as their relative has the right above all others to buy the field, to pay the price that ensures that they were safe and returned to his family. In the New Testament, Jesus is portrayed as our kinsman redeemer, rescuing us from death and judgement. Jesus pays the price to rescue us out of bondage, into the freedom of our rightful family inheritance. Another main concept is sacrifice. The word for redemption by sacrifice uh, for sin in the Old Testament is kapua. The idea is that a sacrifice is made that covers the value of the sin. As an act of atonement involves judgment upon the wrong either directly or vicariously through the offering of an equivalent, a life for a life as it were. In the Old Testament context, this is achieved by uh, the offering of animal sacrifices at the temple. The giving of the sacrifice brings about reinstatement to favour and restoration to holiness before God. In the New Testament, substitutionary sacrifice is understood to be the offering of Christ's life for our life. In the act of Jesus' death on the cross, he acts as both the priest and the sacrifice in one. Jesus referred to as our Passover lamb. Jesus willfully died as a payment in order to remove the barrier of guilt and conflict between humanity and God. And our last idea, victory, as is in Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This idea has to do with all those triumph metaphors in the Bible. You do know that Joshua was the first bike mentioned in the Bible in Joshua 6.27. So the Lord was with Joshua, And the roar of his triumph could be heard throughout the land. But seriously, this victory word picture is expressed most often in battleground motifs expressed in images of Christ's victory over the evil powers. Jesus' death on the cross not only offers a way for us personally to be saved, it opens the way for all of creation to be saved. So, a number of important concepts to link when we're talking about salvation. So having listed these, these important ideas that should be in our understanding of salvation, think back to the beginning. How do we go with these ideas in the way we talked about salvation? If you, like me, working out your salvation, you may now think of ways you might want to change what you said, the way you communicated the message of salvation. Interestingly, down through history as society has changed, and as people have thought hard and discussed back and forth the word pictures that have been given in the Bible to try and understand this complex idea, the way people talk about salvation has changed. It's important to note here that I'm talking about the way people talk about it how they try to make sense of salvation in new generations and to be able to communicate clearly what atonement with God is and have it make sense to people. The fundamental idea is that the building blocks of the communication stay the same. The metaphors of the word pictures change. Some word pictures are of course better and, and more full than others. Let's look at a few. In the early church, around 300 AD, a couple of ideas were common. The first is attributed to a guy named Pelagius. Who knows what he really said, but he's remembered for suggesting that our salvation depends on how hard we try. Essentially, we can work our way back to God, if we live really, really good lives. His idea, of course, is contrary to what we read in the Bible, for example, in Ephesians. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. And likewise in the verse directly after Paul's call to work out your salvation in Philippians 2. For it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So clearly the Bible expresses that salvation is a gift from God and and not influenced by anything we do. We can look at Pelagius' idea and quite clearly disagree in our heads. But can we fall into what we might call a Pelagian trap, when we fear in secret that we are not saved because our our religious feelings have just gone away? Or perhaps we harbour a secret dread that because our repeated failures, our, our failure to be good enough our failure to read the Bible every day, our failure to give to the poor, our failure to love our enemies, or even or even to love our family, we get the feeling we're not really saved. Our humanly solution is to try harder, to dig deeper, to give that 110% and trust that the next time we will do better, next time we'll get it right. In our Western world view, we're often drawn to thinking we are who we are because of our own efforts. If we work hard, we get to be successful. This success paradigm can so easily become part of our Christian thinking as well in terms of our salvation. So, so in our heads we may think one thing, we know that Pelagius is wrong, but then in our actions they actually might say something else. The second idea of the time can be attributed to Athanasius. He explained the atoning work of Christ as being about the revelation of God to humanity. Christ takes on human form as Jesus so that we can understand, draw near to, and become more like God. The work of Christ draws us into the very life of God in that God comes to us in the form of Jesus and lives as a human with us. Jesus' life, his death on the cross and ascension, occurs in order to bring us to God and then into unity with divinity itself. A, a deification view of atonement sees the end point of human salvation as a change in the nature of the person to be more like God. Deification as a view, as a word picture for understanding salvation, is based on understanding the person of Jesus, his humanity. His divinity, and it focuses on the nature and extent of what should be our response to that incarnation. In Leviticus 11 it says, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. This, this view of atonement, or word picture, is the traditional understanding of the Eastern Orthodox Church, by the way. Christ the victor. A little later on, around the 700s, a different way of talking about salvation and atonement became popular. The word pictures or metaphors that uh, depicted Christ's victory over sin and death became the dominant medium of expression. And Once again we might hear that roar of the triumph. The word pictures used centered not so much on the work for the individual but on Christ's cosmic victory over sin and death. The language and metaphor looks at salvation through the lens of cosmic conflict and Christ's victory. Atonement is a function of Christ's fight against and triumph over the evil powers of the world, the tyrants under which humanity, including us as individuals, is in bondage and suffering. This view takes a wide-angled lens to salvation and tells the story of Jesus reconciling the whole of creation to God. For example, in Colossians 1, it says, "...and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." A great strength of talking about salvation this way is that it takes death and not just sin alone seriously as an enemy of God, and that it's defeated in Jesus. The early Christians believed that the earthly conflicts that surrounded them were intertwined with conflict between celestial powers. They therefore framed their discussion of the cross and resurrection in terms of cosmic conflict between God and the forces of evil. In this, they understood Jesus' resurrection as sealing his victory over sin and the devil and the powers of evil. At the height of the Middle Ages, around the turn of the first millennium, yet another way of describing Christ's atoning work rose in influence – moral exemplarism. In this word picture, people are drawn to salvation through experiencing Christ's work and seeing it as an example of what a perfect life is like. By encountering Jesus and walking metaphorically with him through his teaching and example, this elicits within them a transformative response. People are drawn to relationship with God through their response to Christ's example of life. An illustration of this influence can be considered when one imagines, for example, a a particular act of bravery that may occur by a single person during a pitched battle between armies. This singular act of bravery by one remarkable person, witnessed by comrades, can encourage and transform the terrified troops into gaining bravery and fighting on with renewed vigour and confidence. Moral exemplarism as a description of atonement is based on the perfect love of Christ which becomes the moral example for those that are witnesses of that love. In seeing and understanding the love of Christ, especially on the cross, people are moved by love to love in turn. People begin to follow Jesus because they recognize that he was a good man, a moral example, one to be emulated and to form one's life patterns around. The example of Jesus' life arouses within people a greater love of God and so in turn they transform more to his likeness, emulating his likeness and becoming more righteous. According to this view, the remedy for sin is a moral transformation. For those that begin by simply seeing Jesus as a good man, they can go on to recognize in Christ's death on the cross and resurrection their need of salvation, and are transformed by Christ's love. Jesus' life and death is seen as a demonstration of God's love that moves sinners to repent and to love God. At Around the same time, St. Anselm of Canterbury is attributed as talking up an alternate way of talking about salvation and atonement, through speaking of restoring honour. In the Middle Ages, when someone committed a crime, it was seen as a personal affront to the ruler or those in authority. If a crime was committed, the crime was interpreted as a personal attack on the authority and honour of the Lord under whose jurisdiction it occurred. To make it right, satisfaction had to be awarded. The satisfaction or the form and extent of the repertory or punitive action instigated on the perpetrator in response to the crime was dependent not on the crime itself but on the rank of the offended person. The higher the rank of the official, the higher the penalty imposed in response to the crime. This idea of justice due in response to a crime committed became a way of communicating God's need for the atonement of sins in humanity. Atonement in this view was seen as requiring our debt of honour to be paid to God, in the same way as it would need to be paid to a feudal lord. In this metaphor, humanity is cast as guilty criminals who have dishonoured God, and their sin, and hence, Owe him satisfaction. The size of the dishonour is infinite because God is infinite. Humanity owes God full honour. However, humans as finite beings are incapable of rendering such honour. Only in an infinite being, God Himself can do it. But in order to be acceptable as satisfaction on behalf of humankind, it must be rendered by a human being. Hence, in Jesus, God must become a man. Only Jesus, who is fully God and fully human, is both able to pay the debt owed for the sin, and as God, he's able, and to fulfill the debt by paying the debt as a human, as the debt belongs to humans. And finally, Let's consider the primary atonement metaphor of the Reformation of the 1500s, penal substitution. At this time, feudalism was being replaced by the formation of national states, and now laws were taking on intrinsic validity, separate from lords and kings, as the the dispensers of justice. At this time, concepts of justice became decoupled from ideas of who had been wronged, and sat more firmly in the realm of justice itself, as in the phrase, let the punishment fit the crime. This word picture of salvation and atonement is the most common metaphor at work in the Western evangelical circles. In this picture of atonement and salvation, God would like to restore relationship with us and dwell with us forever in heaven. Human sin, however, excludes this because Well, God is holy, and he cannot associate with anyone corrupted by sin. It's impossible for humans to achieve the sinless perfection necessary. God the Father provides a solution by sending his Son to earth to suffer the punishment we deserve by dying on the cross. Since Jesus pays the penalty for us, he takes the punishment that we deserve for our sins, God can now regard us as not guilty. This picture of salvation draws on language and themes of the Western legal system and criminal law. Humanity is cast as sinners who are guilty. God is the judge who upholds justice and is guided by the law and is unswerving in his application of justice. The sentence for the crime must be carried out. Jesus takes our due punishment and dies in our place to ensure justice is fulfilled. Christ does not pay a debt that humans owe to God, rather, he bears the punishment of God's justice, demanded by law against human sin. So how do we make sense of our salvation? Salvation is such an obvious idea, it's a concept at the core of the Christian life a concept we're encouraged to work out throughout our life in reverence and love for God, lest we take it for granted. As we reflect upon our thoughts at the beginning, you know, to me being saved means, and again, Jesus' death and resurrection to me means, I wonder if we might express that a bit differently now. Would the terms atonement or grace or justification or reconciliation or redemption or sacrifice or victory be in there? That is, if they weren't there already. And then, as we grapple with these ideas, what's the word picture that we choose to convey to others or to ourselves our understanding of the mystery that is Christ's atoning work that brings us back to be one with God? What word picture comes to mind, and how easily does that convey the meaning that we have of our salvation in Jesus to us and potentially to others? Are there better word pictures that we can use in the 21st century to convey the same ideas and the same truth but may communicate more clearly to Western, bicultural, Pacific, digital people that we live with. As we speak with others, does the idea of working hard and being good surface? If not from us, does it come from them? If it's not in our Spoken understanding does it surface subtly in our attitudes and behaviours. What about the idea that as we work out our salvation, the goal is to become more like Jesus? Do we see that as an important part of salvation? Or do we borrow from our own time and history and see our salvation as a digital thing? I'm either in or I'm out, and really there's nothing more to it. Where do ideas of the salvation and redemption of all of creation fit in our language of salvation? The cosmic triumph over sin, evil, and death that come with Jesus' death and resurrection. Do we see our own personal salvation as part of this picture, or is our own salvation the picture? Then what about metaphors of being guilty, being a sinner and needing to be saved? How do these ideas fit in our language? and our word pictures? Where do these fit in our understanding? And then how do we communicate this to people in this century where ideas of being in need of saving just don't connect with people? Well, there's a richness of New Testament metaphors of atonement and salvation and we should embrace and celebrate these. They give us these building blocks to work with and our task is to work out our salvation With fear and trembling. A good piece of homework is to now sit down when you can and craft new responses to those two prompts. To me, being saved means, and again, Jesus' death and resurrection to me means. And then, share them with at least two other people. One, a Christian, and the other, someone who isn't a Christian. Like Paul, Choose your words carefully to communicate as clearly as you can. Thanks for joining us this week online. Come join us on Sunday mornings too if you're in Hamilton. Find out more about Hamilton Central Baptist Church and discover ways to get involved at www.hcbc.nz. Join us again next week at Central Speaks.